ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the Country Hour and Happy New Year. In a moment, I'll be speaking to a long-range weather forecaster to try and find out where the monsoon is. Where is the Madden-Julian Oscillation? When will the Territory get its first monsoonal burst? You'll hopefully get those answers in just a moment. Also today, before 1.30, we join the team at Crocodilus Park to do the very important but potentially dangerous job of collecting croc eggs. So what we're trying to do is identify where the female is because any given moment she could strike out and she'll strike hard and fast saying to these two people with the stick saying those are my babies, back off or I'll bite you. This is all coming up on our first country hour of the year. Hope you can stick around. We are broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online. G'day there if you are tuning into the podcast. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Now, first up, let's take a look at the year ahead when it comes to food and drink trends. Last year, in 2023, we saw non-alcoholic beer sales surge, smashed burger tacos became a hit, and the world was introduced to Pringles and Caviar. The good people at Pringles have teamed up with the good people at the Caviar Company for a collaboration known as the Crisps and Caviar Collection. The idea was inspired by a TikTok trend which showed users adding a dollop of caviar onto Pringles. Yeah, so that was last year. What might we expect in 2024? Our guest is food futurist Tony Hunter, who has put together... A very interesting list of trends and things that look set to influence the global food industry this year. And it's sort of hard to know where to start, Tony. I guess maybe if we can start by talking about AI, artificial intelligence. What role do you think it is starting to play in the food industry? I think, Matt, that um, generative AI it's going to have a massive effect on the food industry and on consumers as well. I think certainly from the food industry point of view, they're going to benefit like all companies, whether they make widgets or whatever in supply chain and everything else. But really for food industry, it's going to be generating novel flavours and novel products that we've never seen before. Can you explain that further? How does AI create flavours that we've never tasted before? Well, the big thing with generative AI compared to what we call traditional AI, which is, you know, data science and where they have all big tables of data and you ask a question and it pulls it from the data, is that generative AI can look at the data it's trained on and produce things that have never been seen before. And I mean, the an image is a good example, right? If you want an image of an astronaut, riding a unicorn with a pizza in one hand and a mobile phone in the other, Mm. it will give you five different options, right? Now, that image has probably never existed on the planet before, but it created that image. So it's the same thing with flavours. It'll be able to take data from consumers, what they like, what they don't like, look at all the ingredients, thousands of ingredients that are available, and bring together a combination of ingredients that will be something that's never been seen before. 
Are there companies doing this already? A lot of companies are looking at it. The right. problem we've got with Gen AI at the moment, as we know, is it tends to do what they call hallucinate. It produces things that are actually not right that it made up. So companies are rightly a bit um, you know, reticent to go, yep, that looks so fantastic, let's just believe the AI. But they are now looking at generative AI with human oversight, which is definitely what you need at the moment. Now, in 10 years' time, maybe it'll be 99% correct and the humans will barely have to look at it. But at the moment, human being has to get involved in the whole thing, Matt, to make sure that it's not hallucinating. Can we talk about a breakthrough in 2023 of food being made seemingly from thin air? Tell us yes. about what Solar Foods did. Oh, look, that's a fascinating company. Now, what they do is they have some patented machinery and they suck air into their patented machine. They separate out the moisture, the carbon dioxide and the nitrogen, and they split the water into hydrogen and oxygen using solar energy, hence solar foods. Now, they combine all these ingredients and they put some microbes and some minerals and so on in there, and they grow what's called biomass. Now, people are thinking, oh, what's biomass? Well, if you know Vegemite, you know biomass. That's just yeast that's been turned into a black, infamous paste, right? But you don't have to do that. You can grow microbes and you can turn them and structure them into the same thing as you would a soy protein or something like that. And these guys are putting their first factory together, Factory 01, which will make thousands of tonnes of their product called Solain, which has been approved in Singapore for sale. So this is coming to the market this year in 2024, and we'll see lots of different products made with that, everything from alternative protein meat products to dairy products to all sorts of things. Wow. And I've seen pictures. So Solane is a powder. It looks yellow. Do you know what it yep. Do you know what it tastes like? What does thin air No, like? unfortunately not. <laughs> unfortunately not, because I'd have to go all the way to Singapore and wait till someone did something. Yeah. But um, they are doing products over there in, in, in Singapore with it to prove the concept. And the big thing about this, Matt, and think about this in an Australian context, it doesn't need arable land or virtually any fresh water. So what parts of Australia have we got that you could set up massive solar farms with access to um, large amounts of solar energy and grow food without arable land or fresh water. And I wonder if the thin air of the desert tastes different to the thin air of the Daintree rainforest. I, it blows my mind a bit, this stuff. Yeah. I think you're talking about the terroir, isn't it? As they say in wine, what is the terroir of the, you know, the, the air of the, of the, of the, you know, the, the Mount Lofty Ranges versus um, Toowoomba? I mean, yeah, well, I mean, we see water, we air? see bottled water getting described in, yep. in all different ways. Wow. Who knows, Matt? Wow. Who knows? If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour, and we are speaking to Tony Hunter, who is a food futurist. What could 2024 hold for our food? Our beverages. Tony has sent us a wonderful list of of trends that are emerging. And uh, if uh, my Gen Alphas in the household ask for more mycoproteins in their diet, what on earth would they be talking about? <laughs> well, some people may know the UK product corn, Q-U-O-R-N, which is basically made from fungi. As we know, mushrooms are fungi. 
under the ground you have the mycelium and a lot of fungi don't grow with the fruiting bodies we call mushrooms. They grow, if you like, as mycelium. And you can structure that mycelium to make alternative protein products. So there's a few companies around. Um, one is called Riser, uh, a product called Riser from the Better Meat Company over in the US. They're actually adding that to chicken nuggets um, with Purdue, a huge chicken manufacturer over in the, in the US. So that advantage of that product is it grows so fast. I mean, you could say to me today, Tony, um, I would like a cow's worth of mycoprotein, please. I'd look at my watch and go, do it, Matt, come back Saturday morning and I'll get the chainsaw out and cut you out a piece and put it in the back of the ute and you can take it home with you. So that's how quickly you can grow protein. So it's not cell-based meat and it's not no. plant-based meat. It's something no. something that sits in a different area. Yeah, so that we used to have a nice clear line, right? Draw a line down the page. Left-hand side animal, right-hand side plant-based, and we'll make corn our UK mycoprotein. We'll give them honorary plant-based status. Now, we've got everything in between. We have mycoprotein, we have biomass products, we have plant-based products, a whole range of protein products. We even have animal proteins made without the animal but they're identical to an animal protein. So they're non-animal animal proteins that have <laughs> never been near an animal. Oh, wow. There's so much going on in this there space. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as I said, it's hard to know what to touch on. Is it in your job, is it easy to summarise for us what you think could be coming to our plates in 2024? Oh, gee, look, I mean, that's a really difficult question. I think we're definitely going to see... Um, globally, a lot more of these new technology products come into the market. They're getting approvals all around the world, and, and particularly in Singapore, the world leader in regulations, and that's because they import around about 90% of their food, so they need to do more local production. But I think we're going to see lots of novel combinations. I think AI is going to drive some of that side of things. I mean, last year we saw some weird and wonderful combinations just of existing products. I think this year we're going to see more AI-generated products. If you look at um, Coca-Cola, did their Y3000 product last year in 2023, and Anheuser-Busch, part of AB InBev, of the largest brewer on the planet in the US, um, they did their autonomous beer. So I think we're going to see a lot of novel products out there with an AI background, as well as people just putting together some rather strange um, things that we saw in 2023. Cheers, Tony Hunter. Have a wonderful 2024 and appreciate your time on the Country Hour. No problems at all, Matt. You take care. Thanks a lot for having me. Bye. G'day, my name is Heather Smythe. I'm a sensory scientist and flavour specialist and my job is to make food more delicious. And you're listening to the Country Hour. It is 19 to 1. Matt Brand with you this afternoon. And just looking at top-end radars as we go to where, it's pretty quiet, isn't it? For the 2nd of January in northern Australia, it is very quiet. There's a few storms out in the Gulf of Carpentaria, but really not much colour to talk about at all on the radar map. Where is the monsoon? <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's what I want to know. Where is the monsoon? Where is the Julian Oscillation? When can we expect that first monsoonal burst for the season? We'll put these questions to one of the Bureau's long-range forecasters next. Go on, go on, go on. 
Right across the territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Now, if you look at the Weather Bureau's rainfall map for the month of December just gone, and I've got it in front of me here, there's a lot of red ink on the screen. Most of the territory has so far experienced an average to below average wet season. And it's been stinking hot as well. And of course, we're still waiting for that first monsoonal burst of the season. Brad Jackson is a long-range forecaster with the Bureau. Uh, Brad, how long do Territorians have to wait for that first beautiful monsoonal rain? Yeah, Madeleine, thanks very much for that. We've been following it pretty closely at the Bureau. Um, And at this particular point, you know, we sort of... uh, we're expecting a sort of a delayed start to the monsoonal season, um, thanks to climate drivers of El Nino and, and a little bit to do with the positive Indian Ocean Dipole as well. Um, we're looking at uh, still maybe not in the coming week we'll see the monsoon sort of come down, even though there will be showers and thunderstorms in and around sort of the Darwin area and the northern top, top end of the Northern Territory. Um, but we're, you know, we've got the Madden-Julian Oscillation sort of sweeping back over the Maritime Continent and you know, into the Western Pacific sort of mid to late Jan. So we might see some more activity at that particular point. Okay, mid to late Jan, which was kind of your forecast when we spoke to you about a month ago. Although there was that moment where Cyclone Jasper could have come into the Northern Territory. Well, absolutely, and that may have changed things up a fair bit, but, you know, with most tropical cyclones, they're, they're pretty pretty hard to sort of predict and they can influence, in, you know, in a random kind of way, um, which then can sort of skew things a bit. But at this point, there's the tropical cyclone outlook for the Northern Territory is pretty low at the moment for the next seven days. Um, and we're looking, as I said, probably about mid-January um, is, is more likely for the monsoon sort of arrival at this point. But, um, yeah, we just have to wait and see as we get a bit closer see if it's likely to appear. I don't suppose you've got in front of you there the latest first monsoonal burst of the season that the Territory's experienced? I don't have that in front of me right at the moment, Matt, oh. um, but it's something that yeah, we can look into a bit further for you. Because middle of Jan would be getting definitely at the later end. Well, absolutely. It, it is definitely the later end, though, and I do agree. I think, you know, the average arrival of the monsoon is around Christmas time. Um, so, yeah, even now we are delayed and it's likely to sort of just, just uh, stay delayed just a little bit longer. We've been talking about when to expect the first monsoonal burst, but uh, the wet season in general, how, how is the next three months shaping up? The next three months at the moment is shaping up um, sort of below average sort of rainfall across the northern part of the top end, um, the very northern coastal areas, and average a bit further inland. So, And throughout the bulk of the Northern Territory, though, it, it's likely to be below average rainfall um, from the January to March period. So that's what we're sort of looking at at this particular point. And over in the West, the Kimberley in particular hasn't even had a start to the wet season, it seems. What's driving that? Um, Over in the Kimberley in the West Australia, the the next three months is also looking a bit below average as well. They're being sort of influenced a bit by the positive Indian Ocean dipole sort of process in the Indian Ocean. And so that's actually reducing their chances of sort of getting average rainfall at this particular point. They've had a late start to their, their northern wet season um, and the northern rainfall onset hasn't been achieved in a couple of areas in, in sort of the Kimberley region. So we're still waiting a bit for that to come. The positive Indian Ocean Dipole, though, will break down when the monsoon does actually arrive. So it'll return to neutral, which then should hopefully maybe sort of free up a bit of that rainfall. 
Okay, so it sounds like everyone needs to have their fingers crossed for sort of maybe 7 to 14 days' time. Well, very, very possibly. I think across northern Australia, um, you know, apart from the the uh, something like tropical cyclone Jasper coming through, like an event of that kind of nature, um, you know, that will bring heavy rainfall as we found in the, in the Cairns sort of area in, in northern Queensland. But across the tropics at the moment, yeah, we are still waiting for that that arrival, the arrival of that monsoon. Okay, the fingers are crossed. Thank you so much for your time today, Brad Jackson. Appreciate it. Anytime at all, Matt. Thank you very much for having me along. Thank you, Brad Jackson. He's a senior climatologist with the Weather Bureau. Waiting for the monsoon. It's not much fun, is it? There has, of course, been some nice falls of rain in the last week or so. And there's been a few violent storms. I wonder if we've got anyone listening this afternoon who ventured along to the Catherine Country Club on New Year's Eve and was there to witness that storm. Happy New Year! Yeah, apparently got very wild around Catherine there on New Year's Eve and there was a bit of damage around the region. We'll be talking more about this in the second half of the Country Hour. G'day, I'm Jermaine. G'day, I'm Caleb. And we're from Territory Bees. We're out here in Darwin's rural area attending to some hives and you're listening to the Country Hour. We've been talking about rain. Let's talk about bushfires now. Last year, as you know, was an absolute shocker for the Territory with around 33 million hectares burnt. 23 million of that was in the centre, the Barclay and the Tenamai regions. Nathaniel Steneford from Bushfires NT. He spoke to Stuart Brash earlier on about how this year, 2024, is shaping up. Look, so far, uh, not too bad. We actually managed to have our crews um, mostly stand down yesterday. So they were all on standby, uh, ready to come in, but we didn't actually have them come into the office and they, they got a small chance for a break. Um, but everyone's back at work today and ready to start responding to fires across the district again um, yeah. as required. I can still see, and there's still some big fires burning. There's a little bit of unburnt country in the Tanami, which has still got some big fires burning in part of that sort of to the east of north and east of Banker Banker. Also, there's a fire not too far north on the Stewart Highway between Banker Banker and Elliot. Are there any fires of concern at the moment which you're trying to keep an eye on? Not so much at the moment. Basically, those larger landscape scale fires up around Renner Springs or um, or further south near Amaru, uh, we're, we're liaising with the landholders. They're so far uh, able to deal with those fires themselves uh, and we're just providing some advice uh, and especially working with our partners at Bureau of Meteorology to provide some uh, indicative weather for what's likely to happen uh, should those fires continue to spread there. Yeah, yeah, and because I'm looking at the week ahead, Nathaniel, it doesn't look great. Uh, the Bureau earlier this morning, and they were suggesting the onset of, they couldn't see the onset of the monsoon before the middle of the month. Is that the sort of information you've been getting? Because you know, it would be nice to see some rain in the Barkley and the Gulf Country and the northern Tanami, I'm sure. Yeah, look, so some rain in that northern part of the territory is going to be fantastic at the moment uh, and try and help some of the people who have been impacted by fires to, to start getting some new feed. 
Uh, I was just going to say that in the uh, southern part of the Territory, we don't necessarily want to see too much rain at the moment because we had that rain in November and it sort of just put everything on pause and extended it out um, later into this new year uh, as to when the fire season will continue to, basically. Yeah, what is the prediction on you know, Central Australia, especially in the Tanami as well? We don't get a regular wet season, so summers and this summer's been, after November, has been again quite hot quite dry. What are you expecting over the next few weeks and months and do you have an end to the fire season in sight? Look, we don't have an end date at this point. We were working towards the end of February but that's all uh, very much dependent on the weather and the fire activity that we have. It's going to remain hot and dry is my understanding through Central Australia and we could see fires any time from now, basically. Uh, I've been alerted to one this morning uh, just south of the Gap, even. Uh, Before I let you go, Nathaniel, what do you want landholders to do, especially those who might be on what we call the peri-urban, around Alice Springs, around Tennant Creek, around communities? What would you like them to do while they have time, while there's no fires burning in their part of the landscape? If it's safe to do so, make sure that those fire breaks are in place and maintained. Be careful while you're doing it though. If you're going to be using a mower or a slasher or something along those lines, make sure that you've got some sort of fire suppression equipment nearby that if you cause a fire, you can extinguish it straight away. Um, And basically it's be prepared. Make sure those fire breaks are in, know know what's coming uh, and just clean up around the place. I know that it's hot and it's not all that nice, but uh, some of our guys are doing that and they're starting early in the morning they'll go out do a bit of brush cutting uh, around the sites that we're using and be stopped by eight nine o'clock in the morning so that they're in before it gets too hot that's nathaniel Staniford from bushfires nt speaking to stuart brash earlier today fingers crossed for a better year when it comes to fires because 2023 will go down in the record books it was a nasty one indeed and just looking at the NAFI website as we go to air this afternoon there is that hot spot just south of Alice Springs and looks like there's a bit of fire on Bond Springs cattle station as well. Now if you missed the country hour just before New Year's we were talking about four sniffer dogs that have been trained up in the Northern Territory and their job is to sniff out any infestations of browsing ants. Now these ants you might remember They first popped up in the Territory back in 2015 at the Darwin Port. They thankfully have not established themselves in the Territory. But they do pose a threat not just to the environment, but also agriculture in the top end. Jan Kahoot had a chat to the NT's Browsing Ant Eradication Program Manager, Chris Collins, to learn more about that threat to farming. So browsing ants, uh, they're in the family um, related to um, fire ants and yellow crazy ants and their potential damage that they could do in Australia and the, and the Territory is um, to overrun and outcompete um, native ants and, and also other insects. Um, so that's probably the main one or on the environmental side of things. And they're also known to um, farm like scale insects like aphids and whatnot, so spread them around um, on plants so they could have an impact on agriculture as well uh, in the Northern Territory. Any particular crops that you mean by agriculture? Uh, Yeah, certainly horticulture, um, irrigated crops, um, wet season crops, 
um, most likely, like your cotton, mangoes, uh, any any crops that are affected by aphids or scale insects, um, they, they could um, increase the damage caused by those insects. Uh, so we haven't actually realised any of that damage uh, yet. So we've had up to, uh, I think it was 23, 24 sites. Um, all 23 sites uh, in and around Darwin now are effectively eradicated, but we can't claim eradication from the Northern Territory until we get rid of this one last persistent site, um, which we hopefully will be able to finish our um, control work there um, before June, hopefully a bit earlier than that. And, um, and then we start our countdown for two years without uh, ants, so our proof of freedom period starts then. And where, where is that area specifically? So, yeah, the, the last remaining site is, is out near Jabiru. Yeah, working with the, the landholders there and other stakeholders around the, around the, to monitor for ants escaping from that one site and, and also working with those stakeholders quite closely to, to get rid of them on that site. That is Chris Collins, who is the NT's Browsing Ant Eradication Program Manager. If you missed our coverage at the back end of 2023 about those four sniffer dogs, you'll be able to catch that information via our podcast. My name is James Gorry from TrainSafe NT. Just before you drive out bush, just do a quick inspection under your car or under the bonnet. So just keeping vehicles clean so we're not spreading biohazards, soil diseases or weeds. And enjoy listening to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. It's our first Country Hour for 2024. Happy New Year to you. I wonder if we've got anyone listening this afternoon who went along to the Catherine Country Club on New Year's Eve. It sounds like things got a bit wild weather-wise. Happy New Year! Yeah, a bit of lightning, plenty of wind and a bit of damage, unfortunately. I'll tell you more about that storm in just a moment. And before 1.30, yes, we will be heading to one of the croc farms of the Northern Territory to do that important but fairly risky job of collecting eggs. This is all coming up on the Country Hour. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. Happy New Year to you, Billy. Yeah, thank you. Same to you, Matt. It's, um, well, it's, it, it's been a, a few days since the Country Hour was on air. Tell us, uh, the rainfall figures for the last seven days in the Northern Territory. Are there any highlights there? There's no highlights. No, it's a pretty sad story. Um, so top of the, the seven-day rainfall list uh, is Victoria River Downs, but it's only 54 millimetres. Um, and then so obviously everything else I'm about to read out is less than that. Wow. Um, yeah, so, you know, as it's just been very isolated thunderstorm activity um, for the last week. So, yeah, the VRD has been the best with 54 millimetres. Um, in the upper Adelaide River, 52. Delamere's had 41. The Central Waterhouse, 40. Um, the West Waterhouse, 28. Keep Rivers had 25. Uh, the Pines, 22. And so you can see this is pretty much just in the uh, the western top end in the, the VRD country. Um, yeah, and for this time of year... That uh, that's a seven day rainfall totals and um, really not much to talk about. And a lot of that rain looks like it's come just in the last twenty four hours, Billy. 
Yeah, look, I mean, those rainfall totals would just be one or maybe two thunderstorms that have, have rolled through. And, yeah, the last couple of days um, there's been a little bit of a, a pickup in that thunderstorm activity across the, the sort of northwest quarter of the Territory. Um, and as you mentioned in your intro, yeah, some of those have been producing some, some damaging wind gusts as well. So we've got a question here from Chris in Palmerston who, who says, can you please ask the Bureau when we're expecting a decent amount of rainfall in the top end? Yeah, look, I guess it's the question on our lips, on everyone's lips. Mm. Um, look, we're not looking at any decent rainfall sort of in the next sort of week or two. Um, what we're looking at is just a, probably from the weekend onwards. Between now and the weekend, it's going to continue to be fairly isolated thunderstorm activity. Uh, from the weekend and into early next week, uh, it does look like we get a bit more moisture, uh, some more favourable conditions for rainfall across the, the top end and uh, also extending down into the Barkley. Um, so there is some, yeah, good uh, promise for some some widespread showers and thunderstorms down through the Barkley and, and more through the VRD, uh, particularly from the weekend. But um, in terms of widespread rainfall, um, we're really just waiting for the, the Madden-Julian oscillation to move through our region and, and draw down the, the monsoon across northern Australia. And, um, you know, probably the middle of January is about the earliest we could expect that to happen. Yeah, we had your colleague Brad Jackson on earlier and sounds like, you know, even with your fingers crossed, don't expect any monsoonal activity to the middle, potentially even later part of January, which is, which is late. It'd have to be, you know, in the history books, it'd be one of the later ones, would it, Billy? Oh, absolutely, one of the later ones, yeah. I'm not sure what the, the records are in terms of the latest, um, but, you know, any sort of monsoon onset into January is getting a bit bit late for, for most people's uh, liking. Yeah, and just on the topic of fire, there are a few hot spots to the south and north of Alice Springs as we go to where, and there's some sizable fires in the Barkley region as well. For those out there trying to battle these blazes, what are conditions like? Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, high fire danger through that region. Um, the main thing is it's hot and it's dry, so temperatures um, either high 30s or low 40s um, and, you know, quite dry as well, you know, relative humidity around 20% or less. So um, fortunately it's not, it's not overly windy, um, but still hot and dry and a little bit of wind uh, will make for some difficult conditions. Um, but the trend is for the humidity to increase through um, southern and central parts during the next couple of days. Um, that will lead to a bit more cloud cover, uh, some cooler temperatures, um, and prob well, definitely some, some patchy rainfall as well. And a question's just come through, Billy. No name and no location attached to it. The question is, what is the average rainfall to date? Oh, OK. Um, Look, let's assume that's Darwin because that's the only figures I have in front of me. Yeah. Um, so for Darwin Airport to date, we've had 312 millimetres. Um, if we were keeping up with the average, we'd be at around 480. So we're, Ooh. I guess we're we're down by what's that about 160? Yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah. Gee, and um, to yeah, to whoever sent in the text, like I've got the bureau's three month rainfall total map in front of me sort of up until the end of December and when you click on the 
rainfall deciles, the map just turns white and red, which shows that so far over the last three months, the Territory's had an average to below average. In some spots, it's very much below average wet season to date. So lots of room for improvement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, once we get the monsoon and some tropical lows, you know, the the situation will change. But uh, Mm. obviously we haven't had any of that yet. All right then, Billy. Thanks for keeping us up to date. Appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Don't let the cuteness fool you. Come on, puppies. A new litter of muster dogs are setting to work. Five Australian Border Collie Pups. Can't help the life, eh? Five ambitious stock handlers. Our trainers have got their work cut out for them. Who will rise to the challenge and become the new champion? You look after me and I'll look after you. A brand new season of Muster Dogs. <laughs> Starts Sunday, January 14 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Yeah, can't wait for that second series of Muster Dogs on the ABC. It's going to be great. If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour. It is 12 past one, and this is our first program for 2024. It sounds like New Year's Eve got a bit wild around Catherine. A big storm caught the Catherine Country Club by surprise. I wonder if you were there on Sunday evening. This violent storm, it brought down trees around the golf course, it knocked the power out, and it did unfortunately cause a bit of damage. The club's chief executive, Alan Evans, he had a chat to Yanka Hoot about what happened. We had a big function organised through NT government. They organised it all. We had kids' disco. We were supposed to have a band and a DJ. Um, but then, of course, the storm came through and stopped the light. Yeah. Caused a fair bit of damage to our marquee. No one got injured, of course, which is great. Um, but out on the out on the golf course and fencing and so forth and on the greens, it's caused major damage. Uh, so did the marquee completely come off, or what happened? No, there? no. One end, one end's been all torn. So I spoke, spoke to the insurance company this morning. They're going to help us out with that. Yeah, but it tore all that, and so because all the kids are in there, it got all wet. So the kids had to get out of the marquee because that's where the kids' event was. Uh, yeah, but everyone sort of hung around still. To well, not everyone, a few families left. Haven Power was going to come back on. We had emergency lighting, of course, but that only ran for a few hours. So yeah, destroyed destroyed what was going to be a good night because we're building up with some real good numbers. People were still lining up at the door, you know, just before a lot of the stuff started. So yeah, it's very disappointing, but. We can't stop the weather. And uh, do you think this is quite unusual? I've been up here 12 months now, and last year I went to Darwin for New Year's, and they had a similar thing go through there last year. I can't. I wasn't in Catherine for it because I decided to go up there. Um, so, you know, every, everyone, like especially the older members of the club, said, you know, it's pretty common you get these cells come through the area and just stick to one air, one part. Because, of, you know, talking to our greenkeeper today, he had... He's just out on the gorge road and he had no branches down or nothing out his way. You know, and he's where he is, he's probably about 15k out of town. But on the south side, and I live on the east side of Catherine, and we there's branches down around the high school and there's a few bit of stuff down. But compared to the south side here, yeah, the south side scene have got a lot of it. So, how's the clean up going? Uh, we're getting there. We've got. Brian Floods, he come around to inspect all the trees. We're going to have to take a lot of trees down, a lot of broken branches, still in trees that haven't come out. Uh, we've discovered a lot of other um, damaged trees. Um, we just had 
he'd almost just completed a tree order on the venue, actually, out on the course for safety reasons. And Yeah, there was going to be a few trees cut out anyway, but there's going to be a lot more now just for just for insurance purposes more than anything. There's a lot of broken ones. Yeah, so I don't know what the full extent or bill's going to be at the moment, um, but I can see it being quite substantial. Uh, you you're getting a couple of trucks to all the trees knocked yeah, down? Yeah, yeah. The tree masters, they're going to um, mulch most of it because then we can use a lot of it. So we've got a big pile that they're already. We've got some volunteers out there. Plus I've got my um, three people to work out on the greens. They're out there now. We had to go purchase another chainsaw, of course. Um, and we've got a tipper out there and we've got utes and so forth. And they're getting rid of a fair bit of the smaller stuff that they can do. But there's a lot that's got to be left to the professionals. That is Alan Evans, who's the chief executive of the Catherine Country Club. Bit of a wild night there on Sunday for New Year's Eve. I wonder if you were there for that one. I've seen the odd video and, my goodness, the lightning, the wind. Nasty stuff, nasty stuff. Right across the Territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. Up next, we're heading to one of the crocodile farms of the Northern Territory to do that risky job of egg collecting. Ready to hit the road less travel? Back Roads is back out adventuring. From Tassie's Tasman Peninsula to East Arnhem Land in the Territory and everywhere in between. Join me, Heather Hewitt, and my guest explorers now on Tuesday nights at 8, visiting the small towns and communities that make Australia so special. All new Backroads returns Tuesday, January 9 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. It is 20 past one and you are tuned into the Country Hour as the monsoon slowly, slowly makes its way towards the Territory. The team at Crocodilus Park are busy collecting crocodile eggs. Each year, this farm collects around a 1,000 eggs. And, of course, the job is to get them and to put them in an incubator. Max Rowley followed croc keeper Tyson Whitefield and his team to learn what this risky job involves. So what we're trying to do is identify where the female is because any given moment she could strike out and as a protective mother, she's going to defend her babies. So what Tyson's trying to do is trying to figure out where she is, because um, pretty much about 10 metres to your left is actually the river. So she could be anywhere in an ambush position, and she'll strike hard and fast, saying to these two people with the stick, saying, those are my babies, back off or I'll bite you. So they're just checking out. Now it looks like we're ready to go. All right, let's head in then. Yeah. Hopefully there's no protective mother. Oh, I hope not, mate. All right. So this is the nest, so most of the time uh, the females will build a big mound of dirt. Every croc species is different, so with the other croc species, the freshwater crocodiles, they dig it in the ground, whereas a salty, nice big mound. So normally it's roughly about two metres wide and about half a metre tall with all sorts of vegetation. Um, here on our river cruise, we give them just a bit of hay and they do the rest. So pretty much this female's here, she's come up, used her back legs and she's just been scratching all the dirt, making this beautiful mound. So what we try to do is we open the nest up, to identify where the eggs are and then we'll put a thermometer in the nest, close it back up, give about 30 seconds and then we'll get a rough estimate of the temperature of the nest. Why does the temperature of the nest matter? Um, because it determines the sex of the eggs and also if it's overheating some of the eggs could actually cook up inside. So the last few nests we've collected they've been between roughly 35 to 38 degrees when we've collected them and um, some of the eggs in a couple of days after that haven't actually made the incubation process. 
because our job is, as keepers, we come in, we collect the eggs, that way they have a high success rate of hatching out. It takes about probably 85 days exactly um, to incubate, then they hatch, and you get more baby crocodiles in captivity. Compared to the wild, it's about 20% uh, hatching rate out in the bush because you've got um, climate's the biggest thing, threat to these guys. So you've got, we've got two people standing watch on either side of the nest. Yeah. I guess I better let you get, yeah. get stuck into it. <laughs> And so, Emily, you're holding a, a big oar with, with some pipe attached to the end yes, of it. and it's a bit chewed at the end. You can see a few bite marks there, a bit of chunks missing, torn off. So what's the strategy if the croc does so come towards us? If she does come out, it's just a bit of a gentle tap, and it's more of a bit of an annoyance thing. So you want to get, get in front of her. If she comes out, I would lunge straight forward, and I'd start giving her a few taps, and then she'd go in the water after, you know, two or three taps. Every croc is different. Being out on our river here, though, the, the females are a little less defensive compared to, say, um, some of our enclosures up in the park because up in the park they're used to seeing people all the time, you know, from 9 to 4 p.m., people walking past their enclosures, whereas down here on the river it's just the river crew. So when it, we're out here, they're unsure of what's going on. They just know that, you know, they've got to protect their nest. If I was holding that oar... I don't know if I'd be game. I don't know if I, I wouldn't trust that it would work. Just uh, knocking the the crock with that, I'd probably be turning the other way and throwing it and and running. Oh look, when when it's your job, you know your guard. That's your your responsibility is to make sure the safety of your team members. And you'd be surprised. It's a it's a bit of an instinct thing that kind of comes over in you, and you know that okay, I've got to I've got to protect myself, and I've I've got to protect my my staff here. So you'd be surprised what you can do. I'd maybe need to work on that before I get a job at Crocodilus Park. Then maybe maybe. Yeah, for such a big man, you have no idea of where she's actually deposited her eggs. So they could be at the very top, or they could be right at the bottom. You have no idea. So before they actually build a nest, they need a good rainfall to come in. So this, this year's actually been a bit um, slow start compared to last year. Last year it was already raining in October. So far it's been raining these last couple of weeks. So when it rains, it gets all nice and moist. So the hay before was all dry. Now it's all nice and moist. She's come over and just dug it all up, which makes it harder for me to get in here. Oh, here you go. Get right in there. there wow. So that's a saltwater crocodile's egg. So you can see all piled up. Jackpot. So what we do now is get the thermometer out, put it in, cover back up and give it about 30 seconds. So what's the ideal temperature that you're looking for? Um, roughly about probably 32 degrees and also the temperature determines the sex of the crocodile. So 32 degrees you're going to get your males. Um, here in the wild any above below degrees you're going to get more females. So this nest most likely will be a bunch of little girls inside the eggs. But it can change the course of the day. So this could have been here for about a week and um, they really could have been sex. But it can change the next couple of months, hopefully. What's the success rate in terms of collecting the eggs and hatching um, them elsewhere? So there's no real increasing in that, unfortunately. So naturally, both wild and captivity, you're going to get probably 20% hatching because uh, you will get some infertile eggs or some eggs that have naturally been affected already by the heat and they haven't kicked in or shown any signs of damage until a couple of days later if we collect them. And there's always the odd human error as well. There might be one or two eggs that accidentally have been rolled in the process of moving because sometimes we might collect all the eggs. As soon as you pick up that box, mother comes out and you're like, <clears throat> and you're going to drop the box and you're going to run like hell. 
there's that error as well. But from hatching rate to reach the big crocs that you see around in the wild, it's about 1%. So in captivity, they have a much higher rate to reaching the big dominant hood. A lot of people do say why we harvest eggs, um, the preservation of crocodiles. So you can imagine the wild 20% hatching rate and it's a 1% to the fully grown maturity hood. Here you can collect them and you'll have more higher numbers here in captivity. Alright, so the eggs are all here. So you can see how they're all um, placed here in the nest. Just grab one at a time and that's the egg right there. Then you just gently put it in the box here. And when you do this, um, there's a 50-50 chance mother gets upset and she'll try to kill me. So I'm trusting Tyson. So you've got your esky full of precious cargo and out the way you came. And now all these eggs are collected, where are they off to next? Um, yeah, so we go back at the, our place called the Green Shed. At the back we've got a process uh, to incubate the eggs. And, um, and then we've got an incubator, um, like little room. And it's at a steady 32 degrees temperature. And every morning we go in and then just check if it's working or not. And for the hatchlings that do make it, do they all stay in the park or do they venture elsewhere? Um, some stay, um, but commonly they actually get sent to other croc farms because other croc farms we have had no luck with their breeding programs. Our breeding program are very successful. These guys have been laying for the last 10 years or so, so they're very consistent, which is good. And uh, sometimes in the Northern Territory you can actually have a crocodile as a little pet, um, probably the best pet to look after. Don't have to give them much love, just feed them once a week. Don't have to give them baths or give them for a walk. You can do that, or but commonly they go to other croc farms here in Darwin, or they get sent around the world as um, entertainment or their own research programs as well. That is Tyson Whitefield, who is a croc keeper and tour guide at Crocodilus Park in Darwin, speaking there to Max Rowley. I'm pleased Max got home safe, all in one piece. And that story wraps up our first country hour for 2024. We've got no Roma cattle market report today because the sale yards there are still on their Christmas break. The first Roma cattle sale of the year will be next Tuesday on the 9th of January. I'm off to go and do a little bit of cattle work myself. Uh, I'll be taking just a short break from the country hour. Annie Brown and Dan the Man Fitzgerald will be looking after you for the next week or so. I hope the start of 2024 is treating you really well. I'll catch you in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, keep it rural.